This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Zycam. Other cold medicines only mask symptoms, but Zycam is clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the nasal swabs are zinc-free, homeopathic, and allow for a gentle application in the nasal passages. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all major retailers, including Walmart. Visit Zycam.com manliness to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. That's Zycam.com manliness to get a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the winter of 1940, a group of civilian skiers was sitting by a fire in a ski lodge in Vermont, shooting the breeze about how the U.S. Army needed an alpine division like the militaries in Europe had. That conversation transformed into a concerted effort to turn their idea into reality and the creation of the Army's 10th Mountain Division, a unit which played a vital role fighting in the mountains of Italy during World War II. My guest today has written a book on the skiing snowborn soldiers. His name is Morris Isserman. He's a professor of history and the author of The Winter Army, The World War II Odyssey of the 10th Mountain Division, America's elite Alpine warriors. We begin our conversation discussing why the U.S. Army didn't have an Alpine division before World War II and how a group of civilian skiers led by a man named Minnie Dole spearheaded the movement to create one. Morris then shares why the 10th Mountain Division heavily recruited from top-tier colleges and how the unusual makeup of the division influenced its unique culture. We then discuss how the military figured out what new equipment this new Mountain Division needed and the vigorous training its members undertook high in the mountains of Colorado. Morris then digs into the 10th's involvement in the war and whether they actually got to use the skills they trained for years to hone. And we our conversation discussing the legacy of the 10th Mountain Division, including their role in America's post-war boom in recreational skiing. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash mountain division. All right, Morris Isserman, welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So you just got a book out called The Winter Army. The World War II Odyssey of the 10th Mountain Division, America's Elite Alpine Warriors. How did you come across this story of the 10th Mountain Division? Well, in a very personal way, when I came to Hamilton College, where I teach history some 30 years ago, one of my colleagues in a different department, uh, geology, was named Don Potter. And uh, he was kind of a mentor to junior faculty and he was an avid outdoorsman. And so we, we shared that a skier. And in the course of getting to know him, he would tell me stories about training with the 10th Mountain Division in Colorado, skiing in the Rockies, and then going to Italy. And he never talked about the, the actual fighting, but after the immediately after the war in May of 1945, he got leave and he went up to Mont Blanc and he, in France. He climbed from Chamonix to the summit and skied down. I mean, wonderful stories about his wartime experiences. And so they kind of planted a seed with me that this was a very interesting unit with a unique history. And over the years, I've written several books about mountaineering in the Himalayas and in North America. And I kept bumping into guys who were veterans of the 10th, who trained in Colorado, who fought in Italy, and would have little paragraphs describing their experiences. And then it just seemed to me there was a a bigger story to tell there. And so I discovered that the archives of the 10th Mountain Division were in Denver at the Denver Public Library. And they have hundreds of uh, collections of wartime letters and diaries and other documents from the veterans. And I explored the archive and found this, this really rich and impressive history. And why do you think so few Americans know about 
their creation and role during World War II? Well, it depends where you are. In Colorado, you can get license plates that uh, say dedicated to the memory of the 10th Mountain Division, and there are roads named for them and memorials for them. And in my corner of the, the Northeast, where many of the original 10th soldiers were recruited because they were recruiting skiers and people with mountain experience. Dartmouth College alone, from which had a ski team, sent over a hundred of their alums into the 10th. So they're they're pretty well remembered here. But in the country as a whole, you know, compared to say the 101st Airborne Division, they're they're less well known. Someday somebody will make a movie about them, and then you know they'll they'll like Band of Brothers, or whatever, and and uh, I think they'll get their due acknowledgement. Well, let's talk about the creation. So we got to talk about the fact that before World War II, the U.S. military didn't have a mountain division. Why didn't they have a mountain division? Well, before World War II, the U.S. Army never fought on a snowy mountain. There were a couple of mountain battles during the Civil War, but they were in Tennessee, and so they, were, they weren't fighting in the snow. And they didn't have any specially trained troops. Unlike in Europe, where, of course, a lot of the national borders are run along mountain chains, the Pyrenees, the Alps, uh, and, and so forth. So it came naturally to Europeans to think we need specially trained troops, Alpine troops. So Germany had a long tradition of mountain troops. So did Austria, so did France, so did Italy. But the U.S. experience was quite different. One of the founders of the 10th Mountain Division, a civilian who came up with the idea, Charles Minot Dole or Minnie Dole, referred to the American army right up to before uh, the Second World War as a tropical army because mostly it was stationed in places like Hawaii or the southern states or the Caribbean. They had small contingent in Alaska, but they, they just didn't think in terms of mountain warfare. So let's talk about this Dole guy, because the idea of a mountain, a mountain division, a mountain, an alpine troop, it didn't start within the military. It actually started with a bunch of civilian skiers sitting by a fire at a ski lodge in Vermont, kind of shooting the breeze and saying, hey, you know, the U.S. needs a, an alpine division. Yeah, absolutely. That was in the late winter of 1940, and Europe was at war. The United States was not yet a belligerent, but uh, as you say, these civilian skiers who had no military experience in their background, but they were really good skiers. A couple of them were Olympic skiers, had competed in the 1936 Winter Olympics. And one of them was this guy, Minnie Dole. Minnie Dole was an insurance executive from Greenwich, Connecticut. He had started skiing in the early 1930s when skiing was really in its infancy in in the United States. There weren't many ski resorts. There weren't any ski lifts. It was was a a European sport that some Americans were beginning to uh, practice. And Minnie Dole was a a kind of entrepreneurial guy. He was a take-charge guy, and and after suffering a ski accident himself on a slope in Vermont, he conceived the idea in the mid-1930s of uh, creating a a rescue unit of civilian volunteers, which became the National Ski Patrol System, which still exists and aids injured skiers on resorts all across the country. So when he got hold of an idea, he he was pretty tenacious. And in that conversation in, in 1940, 
these four skiers, all civilians, said, you know, we're going to get into this war. And if we fight in Europe, we're going to come up against experienced and well-trained German, Italian, Alpine troops. And we don't have anything comparable. We need to come up with a comparable unit. And so Minnie Dole you know, started at the top and he wrote to President Roosevelt, uh, who actually responded. He, he got in touch with with the Army, with General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, and he got rebuffed several times. I mean, who is this civilian? But in the end, he prevailed and persuaded the Army to create the 87th Mountain Infantry Regiment, which was the kernel of what grew into the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division. And they began training in November 1941 at Fort Lewis in Washington State. So just a, a very few days before Pearl Harbor. And so what was, I mean, so they this was completely new to the military. How did they figure out, like, okay, how, what skills does an Alpine soldier need? How do we train these guys? Like, how do they develop the criteria for that, the, the curriculum for that? Well, they, again, they relied largely on civilian advice on Mini Dole, on the National Ski Patrol System. One of the extraordinary things about the 10th Mountain Division, unique really in, in the history of the U.S. military, is that a civilian agency, the National Ski Patrol System, was in charge of recruiting for it. Minnie Dole's belief was that it was easier to make soldiers out of skiers than to make skiers out of soldiers. That is to say, you wanted to recruit guys who already had the basic skills, who, who knew their way around outdoors in cold weather, who were skiers or mountaineers or park rangers or lumberjacks or you know a, a range of occupations. But many of them were recruited out of the very few schools in the country, colleges and universities that had ski teams at the time. So Dartmouth, as I mentioned, and Williams College, University of Oregon, University of Washington, Colorado University, they provided a steady stream of recruits, some of them graduates, many of them just 19 or 20 dropping out of college to join this new elite unit because they wanted to apply the, the, the skills, the abilities that they'd learned as civilians in recreational pursuit to their duties as, as soldiers. Well, and as you know in the book, because a lot of the the people, the guys who went, went joined the 87th were from college uh, because the colleges had ski teams. Like the 87th had one of the most educated group of soldiers out of all the military in the United States. Yeah, it was an unusual unit. And, and the subsequent regiments, the 86th and the 85th, which made up the division, the same thing was true. The Army gave every incoming recruit a basic intelligence test, and I forget what the numbers were, but if you scored above a, a certain number, you could apply for officer candidate school. And typically, in, in a regular division, something like 10% of the recruits would, would be able to do so. But in the 10th Mountain Division, it ran to more like 40% or 50% who could have gone off to Fort Benning or one of the other places where they trained officers. But most of them chose not to do so. They didn't apply for officer candidate school because they knew if they all went off, not too many of them would be able to come back to the 10th Mountain Division because how many second lieutenants can you use? So they would essentially be transferring themselves out of the mountain troops. So instead, they stayed put. 
And as a result, you had many very qualified corporals and, and sergeants uh, in, in the ranks of the 10th Mountain Division. And so what was the culture like? Because this is sort of like the Airborne Division where it was sort of, sort of seen as an elite unit. But also, like you said, they're really educated from uh, mostly from Ivy League schools, uh, outdoorsy type guys. So I'm, I imagine that the regiments in the division developed a unique culture in the U.S. military. Yeah, I think it, it did have a unique culture, as you say. For one thing, so the, the, the recruits knew how to ski, and they'd spent a lot of time finding their way you know, across mountains in, in very cold weather. But their officers, that was less true of, or their, their NCOs, the, what the Army calls cadre, the experienced soldiers who were shipped into a new unit around which you develop the unit, had to be instructed in skiing and, and other basics. And the people doing the instruction were often you know, 19-year-old privates. So you have a 19-year-old private instructing a 30-year-old major how to ski. The power dynamics are, are, are kind of different. There was a great deal of self-confidence in this unit. They had a, a lot of unit cohesion, a lot of initiative, precisely because of those dynamics. And they were all volunteers. You didn't get drafted into the 10th Mountain Division. Later on, during the fighting, there would be soldiers transferred in who had no special mountain training. But the guys who trained in Colorado and then were sent to, to um, Italy, by and large, were already experienced before they joined the Army in their basic skills. They were training in the mountains, and so a lot of what cons- Army training consisted of, what, you know, basic drill and out going to the firing range and so forth, you couldn't do in January. So these these new recruits would show up in, at Camp Hale in Colorado near Leadville, and uh, they'd start skiing immediately. They'd start their specialized training before they did their basic training. I mean, they were trained, they trained how to salute and so forth. But the basic training often had to wait until warm weather returned. Yeah, a lot of some of the letters that you quote in the book, a lot of the guys talk about, it's kind of like I'm on vacation. It's kind of nice. Just get to go skiing. Yeah, I'm getting paid to go skiing eight hours a day. I mean, they they cycled through their ski training. They did beginning ski training and more advanced ski training. But when they when they trained and, and they're up, you know, at twelve thousand feet and on deep powder snow, they were skiing five days a week, eight hours a day with some of the best ski instructors in the world, ski champions, the uh, coach of the Dartmouth ski team, Walter Prager, among others. If, if you wanted to become an expert skier, the best place to do it in 1943 was as a soldier at Camp Hale. And then on the weekends, I mean, Look where they are. They're near Aspen, for example. They'd, they'd, they'd go off and they'd go skiing recreationally. So they'd continue their training even when they weren't training. The comparison with Airborne is interesting. Another elite unit, all volunteers, specialized uniforms, and, and so forth. But no members of the 101st Airborne, or I doubt very many members of the 101st Airborne, had ever jumped out of an airplane before they became paratroopers. They became you know, well-trained paratroopers, but that was once they joined the Army, as opposed to the 10th Mountain guys who were already coming in, many of them, with uh, superior skills in, in, their, in their military specialty. Well, go back to this idea of being self-reliant, this idea of improvisation. The, the I think Minnie Dole talked about the Finnish army 
that he was impressed by their, like that's what he liked about the Alpine soldiers there, you know, fighting off the Russians, their ability to improvise, their grit, their self-reliance. And he wanted that same sort of culture within an Alpine division in the United States. Yeah, we don't really remember the Finnish war anymore, but uh, before Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, Soviet Union went to war with neighboring Finland, trying to acquire territory sort of to the west of Leningrad for a, a buffer zone. And uh, the Red Army outnumbered the Finns and was better equipped than the Finns, but it was tied to the roads. And so you'd have these big lumbering columns of Red Army soldiers with their tanks and their trucks and, and whatnot. And these Finnish troops would come out of the woods and they would ski in and ambush these, and then they'd ski off and they couldn't be pursued. So Minnie Dole was quite impressed by that. Yeah, and the other thing I, I thought was interesting about the, the 10th Mountain Division, talking about the United States, this is their first time ever dealing with Alpine soldiers. Yeah. They had to develop new equipment right. uh, for these guys. They didn't, because like you said, they were, the, the military at that time was sort of geared towards the tropics. So what sort of uh, innovations did the military make to get these guys uh, outfitted and equipped? Right. They developed white camouflaged uniforms. Of course, you, you want to uh, blend in with the snow. They developed skis with metal edges for better control, new kinds of boots that could double as climbing boots and as ski boots with a new, a new sole, which if you buy a pair of hiking boots today, it'll have a Vibram sole as opposed to the old hobnailed boots. So a lot of the equipment that would later be dumped as army surplus and would equip the next generation of skiers and climbers was developed during the war. Nylon ropes up until World War II, climbing ropes had been made out of uh, hemp, manila, and they were heavy. They picked up snow. They, if, you know, you fell while climbing with one wrapped around your your rib cage. We're going to bruise your ribs. They have no give. So there, there were all of these uh, technological innovations that were important both for the tenth during the war, but were important after the war in terms of the outdoor winter recreational industry. And besides skiing, what else did these guys train in? Well, they, they skied all winter and then they climbed all summer. Camp Hale is in a high alpine valley in the Rockies. It's about 9,000 feet. It's surrounded by walls where you can learn basic rock climbing abilities. And they went on maneuvers, of course, in, in the mountains, both in the winter and in, in the summer, and had to learn how to keep, especially in the winter, had to learn how to avoid frostbite, how to pitch a tent in the snow or, or build an igloo, which they preferred to do because it was actually warmer, how to prepare your food, how to get supplies up by mules. You couldn't bring jeeps or trucks up into the hills. So it was a really different approach to fighting. And and the army was, was suspicious of them. Even after they created the 10th, um, they didn't know what to do with them. General Eisenhower turned down the, the 10th. Uh, he, he was being offered different divisions for use in Western Europe. And you know, he, he looked at their table of organization and saw all those mules and, and, and their weapons were lighter because they, you couldn't carry the heaviest artillery up into the mountains. And he, he didn't want any part of them. Which is funny because the first fighting in Europe took place in Italy and Italy's very mountainous. They could have used them at Monte Cassino, for example, in the winter of 1943, 1944, but they were just too strange. 
and and it was a long time before they got into combat, which bothered them because uh, they weren't just there to ski in Colorado. They were there to, to fight in the war, and, and their brothers were already in combat, and they wanted to join them. And so over the course of 1942, 1943, 1944, many of them transferred out. Some transferred into uh, airborne, some transferred into military intelligence. They wanted to get into the fight, but the, but the Army didn't give them a chance to do so. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, ZipRecruiter. Codable co-founder Gretchen Hebner experienced how challenging hiring can be after unsuccessfully searching for a new game artist to grow with her education tech company. But then she switched to ZipRecruiter and saw an immediate difference. And you can too by signing up for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. And using ZipRecruiter's screening questions to filter candidates, Gretchen found it easier to focus on the best ones than find the right one. In fact, after posting her job on ZipRecruiter, Gretchen said she was honestly surprised she found qualified applicants so quickly and hired a new game artist in less than two weeks. It's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Visit ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Try out ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness to try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. If you purchase supplies for a small to mid-sized business, Zorro.com, Z-O-R-O.com is your go-to resource. At Zorro, you'll find all the things that keep a business running no matter what kind of business you're in. Zorro offers tools, safety equipment, cleaning and maintenance supplies, office and shipping, automotive, industrial equipment, and more, including the specialty items you can't find anywhere else. Whether you're shopping for an office, factory, contracting business, or machine shop, you can get exactly what you need. And when you shop at Zorro, you'll find all the brands you already know and trust, like 3M, Prestone, Stanley Black & Decker, Schneider Electric, and Rubbermaid at all at competitive prices. Want fast free shipping? It's yours when you spend $50 or more. And if you have a question, a return, or need to help find exactly the right item, count on Zorro's customer service team based right here in the U.S. Visit zoro.com slash manliness and sign up for Zmail to get 15% off your first order. That's zoro.com slash manliness. Sign up for Zmail for 15% off. Zorro.com, all you need to make your business go. And now back to the show. And while they weren't being, you know, put into battle, like they still, they, they captured the imagination of the American public. They just thought it was, they, I mean, I, st- I mean, I think today people still think it's cool. Like a soldier who skis right. is a really cool idea. Yeah. Th- there were movies made of them, feature film, documentary movies, uh, magazine articles, uh, celebrating them as uh, real he-men. I remember one of the uh, titles of a magazine article said, you know, real he-man in the mountains they looked great they would um, they would do this kind of synchronized skiing which was useless in combat but when you filmed it it looked terrific as they were, especially because they're skiing in the colorado mountains and they're cutting through that deep powder snow and uh, it was a very glamorous image but they weren't in the war Right. And it's, but it, they were still training. As you said, they went on these maneuvers while they were in Camp Hill in Colorado, which is basically this camp that they, the military built pretty much overnight, yep. really fast. And these maneuvers, yeah, it was skiing, but these were really tough, tough maneuvers, tough training. Yeah, because you're up there in the mountains, it's easy to get lost. You might not get resupplied. You have to deal with extreme cold. Uh, it's, it's, um, 
it's a challenge. And there was one particular set of maneuvers that the entire division went on, not just one of the regiments. It was called D series or division series in the spring of 1944. And hundreds of men were hospitalized for frostbite. And thereafter, the, the joke in the 10th Mountain Division, even when they were in heavy combat in uh, Italy in the spring of 1945, was, well, this isn't great, but it's better than D-series. Right. And that was kind of interesting, kind of the point you made throughout the book was the training they received in Campell was a lot more extreme than the, the climbs and the elevations they would actually experience in Italy. Right. I mean, when you're doing mountain warfare, what you're fighting for is control of the passes, not the summits. The summit doesn't count. You want the high ground, but if you can control the passes, you can control all movement through the mountains. And the passes in Italy, for example, the Brenner Pass that leads from Italy to Austria is less than 5,000 feet high, and they're training at twice that altitude. So into all the other difficulties, you have to add in altitude sickness. They acclimatize to it, but by the time you're going to be shipped out and you're taking a train across the country and then a, you know, 10 days in a, in a boat, by the time you're going to get to the battlefield and to the mountains, you're going to have lost that acclimatization. So in retrospect, and we're all brilliant in retrospect, it would have made more sense to train at a, a lower elevation than, than they actually did. So before they got to Italy, some members of the division got a taste for battle. This was, I didn't know about this battle. This was, this is the one of the few battles that happened on American soil. It was in Alaska, Kiska. Uh, what happened to the mountain troops there? Well, the Japanese around the time of the Battle of Midway occupied two small volcanic islands, unoccupied, and no, no population there, called uh, Atu and Kiska. And some people felt or feared that this was going to be the prelude to a Japanese invasion of Alaska or even the Pacific Northwest. Now, there was no way in the world that would ever happen, but they couldn't take that chance. And so the army sent in flatland troops to take back Atu. And it was a bloody battle, not on the scale of Iwo Jima, but uh, still a lot of soldiers died. But a lot of soldiers were knocked out of action because they didn't know how to take care of their feet. They got trench foot, it was wet, it was cold, they got frostbite, but they captured Atu. But when it came time to turn their attention to the next and remaining island, Kiska, uh, the army said, oh, well, we do have these mountain troops, let's, let's try them. So the 87th, one of the three regiments, was shipped from Camp Hale to California for amphibious training, which had not obviously not been part of their training while they were in the mountains, and uh, then shipped off to Alaska. And they, you know, classic World War II landing scene on an occupied island. They get off the landing craft very apprehensively onto the beaches, and nothing's happening. Nobody's shooting at them. Now, of course, the, the Japanese could simply have retreated to the interior and waited for the Americans to come to them. And so uh, the soldiers of the 10th, and, and there were other units, and there was Canadian soldiers there as well. They advanced their way up to the, the ridgeline of this volcanic island. It gets dark. The weather in the Bering Strait is the worst in the world. Clouds swirl in. Visibility is, is cut to zero. And these, these green troops who are on the alert, hyper alert, imagine that they see movement. Or maybe they, they see movement, but it's not Japanese moving. And they start to shoot. One person starts to shoot, and then a, a whole 
platoon starts to shoot and, and nobody can see where the enemy's coming from, but they're, they're convinced they're under attack. And in the morning, when the sun comes up, there are no Japanese bodies, but there are two dozen American and Canadian bodies, and uh, uh, almost all of them are from the 10th Mountain Division. So the unit is bloodied. They're no longer green soldiers, but in the worst possible way. They, they killed their brothers in, in, a, in friendly fire. And what happened when they went back to Camp Hale? Well, they, they felt they had something to prove. Um, and, I mean, young men are cruel, <laughs> can be cruel. And other soldiers um, mocked them and they called them buddy killers and, and similar names. And a lot of them transferred out of the, the, the 10th Mountain. They were so demoralized. Not only were they not being used, you know, where they should have been used in the fighting in Europe, but they were sent off on, on this tragic fool's errand into uh, uh, the Bering Strait. So the 10th finally gets called up to Europe. When did that happen and where did they get sent to? Right. They had transferred from Camp Hale in the Rockies to Camp Swift, which is in Texas near Austin. And some of them feared that they were going to be converted into a, a flatland division, that uh, you know their, their mountain training was going to come to, to nothing because why else send them to Texas? But the, there was a change of heart in Italy uh, among Allied commanders about the usefulness of having specially trained mountain troops. And so finally, in November, they get the summons to, they don't know where they're being shipped, but they know they're going to be transferred to a war zone. And they get a new commander, Major General Hayes, a Medal of Honor winner from the First World War, who is a, a very aggressive and creative uh, commander, the perfect man to lead an inexperienced, still inexperienced division into battle. And so at the end of December and the beginning of January, so December 44, January 45, 75 years ago, uh, they are shipped to Newport News in Virginia where they board troop ships and spend a week or 10 days crossing the Atlantic and then the Mediterranean and disembark in Naples. And from there, they're, they're trucked up to the front line, the last mountainous line of German resistance. The Germans had been putting up a stout defense for a year plus in Italy from one mountain redoubt to, to the next. And they were at their last mountain redoubt, which is called the Gothic Line and runs through the northern Apennines. So Florence, which had been captured by the Allies the, the previous fall, is to the south. And Bologna, which is still in German hands, is, is to the north. And for the Allies to complete clearing of Italy from German control, they're going to have to break out of the mountains and break into the Po Valley. Po Valley, a big open area, includes Milan and, and leads up to the, the Alps and, and the Brenner Pass. Once you're in the Po Valley, all the Allied advantages of armor and air power can be brought to bear which, as they camped. In the mountains, you can't fight a tank battle uh, in the mountains. So it's going to be the 10th's job as the spearhead of the entire Allied offensive in the winter spring of 1945 to clear the way, to break through out of the northern Apennines into the Po Valley. And that's precisely what they do. And what were the major engagements they had during that during that stint? Well, we're coming up to, again, the 75th anniversary of the kind of signature battles of the 10th Mountain Division, which was seizing the, the high ground 
on two mountain eminences, one called Riva Ridge and the other called Mount Belvedere, Mount Belvedere and several mountains linked to it. And first they went up Riva Ridge at night in February, in the dark, untested troops over steep icy trails where their rock climbing skills that they honed in Colorado really came into use. And the Germans were so confident that it was a steep cliff that, that no, they couldn't be attacked from that side of the mountain that they didn't post any guards. They didn't bother laying any mines. They didn't put down any barbed wire. And so these uh, 750 or so Soldiers in the assault team from the 10th Mountain Division achieved complete surprise against the Germans. They captured the ridgeline at the cost of one man wounded, drove the Germans from the high ground. The Germans counterattacked, which is what they always did, and there were more casualties in the days to come. But in their very first time in battle, all of that training and all of that sense of initiative and, and unit cohesion really played out well. And it was a a very significant uh, achievement because it removed the Germans from a place where they could observe the attack on neighboring Mount Belvedere. And so the next night on February 20th, the rest of the division went in. And this time the Germans knew they were coming and they had prepared the ground well with minefields and and, uh, artillery and machine guns zeroed in on, on the main routes up the mountain. And so it was a more costly attack. But still, in five days, they seized three mountaintops. Military planners had assumed it was going to take two weeks to clear the Germans off. And again, that, that same combination of, of training and elan and unit cohesion served the 10th very well and, and set up uh, the advance that was going to take place a month later, breaking out of the Apennines and into the Po. Did they actually do any skiing during that time? Very little. <laughs> um, I mean, here you have ski troops, and somebody decided they didn't need the skis. The skis all went to a warehouse in Boston where they were later sold as army surplus. They scrounged some skis, and they sent out some patrols to scout out German positions or try to take a prisoner in those weeks before River Ridge and Mount Belvedere. But the thing about skiing in the Apennines, it's you're not skiing in deep powder snow in the Rockies. You can ski pretty quietly. The powder masks the sound. You go, shh, 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 shh. But when you're skiing through corn snow, that is snow, this is a much lower elevation. This is three or 4,000 feet elevation. Corn snow freezes and melts and freezes, and you have ice crystals in it, and it goes, scritch, scritch, scritch. So they found in, in the dark of night, they're approaching a German outpost, and there their skis are giving their position away. And the Germans are firing. They don't have to see them. They're firing in the direction of the sound. Uh, And so after one or two experiences like that, they abandoned uh, the skis altogether. They, They weren't practical for the kind of terrain and the kind of fighting that they were going to do. So the ski troopers didn't ski. But the skiing was important because, again, that sense of elan that came from being specialized troops, elite troops, and also because they were tremendously fit. Well, and speaking of that idea that the skis that they had, that the military bought for the soldiers that didn't get shipped there, like a lot of the winter equipment that the military developed for these guys didn't get shipped over there either. That's correct. And um, it all gets dumped on the civilian market in late 1945, 1946. And it feeds a new interest, which the 10th partially helped create in um, skiing as a sport. And in addition, many of the 10th veterans, some 
2000 all told found employment in the ski industry as as instructors they became retailers of ski equipment and a number of them actually created those modern resorts aspen had been a sleepy little failed mining town it had a ski slope before the war but it was 10th veterans who came and turned it into you know one of the premier ski resorts in the world vale also in colorado was uh, founded by 10th Mountain veterans in the late 50s. And there's a statue of a, uh, a ski trooper in the center of Vail to remind visitors just, just who was responsible for this wonderful ski resort. The longest ski run at, uh, uh, at Vail and the most difficult is called Riva Ridge. And there's another ski run there that's, that's called Minnie's Mile after Minnie Dole, the civilian who suggested the creation of the mountain troops. And so uh, the, the 10th had this enormous impact during the war, but they would also have an impact in a different field after the war. And besides the, the big impact they had on American culture, making skiing a popular pastime, what influence did the 10th leave on the U.S. military? Well, the 10th is disbanded in uh, November of 1945. And the, the army has some very specialized units, but not on the division level that are trained for, for cold weather fighting. It's only in 1984, 85, that the 10th is reconstituted as 10th Mountain Division Light Infantry. And they're not ski troops in the sense that the the 10th was during the war. That's not part of their regular training. But they are trained in fighting in cold weather, on rough terrain, in exactly the kind of fighting that the U.S. Army has been doing for the last several uh, decades in Iraq and uh, in Afghanistan. The 10th Mountain Division today, which is based at Fort Drum, which is just a few miles down the road from Hamilton College, where I teach in upstate New York, is the most deployed unit in the U.S. Army and has been for decades. In fact, I I gave a book talk there in December. It was a great privilege to do so on base to an audience of 10th Mountain soldiers who had just gotten their orders that this particular battalion had gotten their orders for deployment to Afghanistan. And I imagine by this time, most of them have been transferred there. And and so they have a, it's not quite the same unit it was during World War II, but but they have a great interest in their uh, predecessors from that generation. And speaking of which, uh, one of the uh, visitors at Fort Drum that day who came to my talk was himself a 95-year-old veteran of the 10th. And several other talks I gave touring in Colorado, Speaking locally, 10th Mountain Veterans, 95, one of them was 101 years old, came to my talk, which was, of course, a great honor. So usually I'm the one signing books at these talks for others, but I had these guys sign my copy of Winter Army. And did these guys, did they fight at these these battles you talked about in the book? Yeah, one of them who visited me in Boulder, Colorado, lives there in a retirement community. He's a guy named Hugh Evans. He was a sergeant who almost single-handedly captured one of the hilltops in the fighting for Mount Belvedere, for which he was awarded a silver star. Uh, And he plays a prominent role in the book. So again, you know, an author couldn't ask for a greater honor than for one of the heroes of his book to to actually show up and, and, and take part in the conversation. 
Well, Morris, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? It's on Amazon. It's uh, last time I looked, number one bestseller in downhill skiing, which is something. And you you can uh, find it at any number of outlets, Barnes and Noble and so forth, or in Colorado in just about any bookstore. So yeah. Check those out. Well, Morris Isserman, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Okay. My pleasure too. My guest today was Morris Isserman. He's the author of the book, The Winter Army. It's available at amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at awim.is slash mountain division, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. Also, if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com. Sign up. Use code MANLINESS at checkout to get a month free trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIM podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it or would enjoy it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the A-Win podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.